Welcome back, episode four. I'm here joined by my very close friend, Eric, who I've known through most of my high school uh, journey, quote unquote. Um, he's a very, obviously, just like the last guest, a very politically intellectual person. He's a, a champion of social rights and obviously various economic rights and things like that. So, um, you know, before we begin, because obviously everyone doesn't know you, if you want to say a little bit about yourself, what you're interested in, majors, anything like that, totally up to you. Go ahead. This is your time. All right. Hi, everyone. Um, I'm Eric Trelico, and I'm a junior at Stan Island Tech, and I kind of fall towards the center, center left politically, and I'm interested in engineering and specifically civil engineering. And I also do research projects. It's very interesting to me for someone who is interesting in engineering and civil engineering. You, you'd sure know a lot about how the Supreme Court works, how the Senate works, and just the overall structure of our government, which I'm very impressed with. Okay, so the first subject I want to start with, and this is kind of like an important subject for me, because I feel that the politics that I lean towards is a little bit misconstrued by certain political figures in our quote-unquote parties. So I want to say, when you present, when you post on social media, oftentimes you include a representation from your opposing side, which would usually be a Republican standpoint. I'm going to ask you, I just want to know, where exactly, how do you collect this point of view? Is it through specific news sources so I can know who exactly is mostly fucking up our representation? So if you just have a clear <laughs> answer to that, so floor is yours. Um... Well, I do like, um, I just get my sources from a variety of places. Um, sometimes it's from conversations I've had with people earlier. Sometimes it comes from the media itself, like news media or the newspapers. Or sometimes I actually follow a lot of right-leaning um, accounts on social media and that. on YouTube. Yep. Yeah. So that's just a, a, a wide variety of sources. Okay, because personally, I feel with the obvious polarization we have today, which I think is largely due to the two-party system and obviously the yeah. media and everything that goes with that, I think that personally, mine would, could be shared economic and social principles that would be considered slightly right-leaning as being hugely misrepresented. For example, there's a common misconception that we are homophobic, even though I'm pro LGBTQ plus marriage and pro LGBTQ plus rights and things like that. Obviously, because Trump doesn't necessarily support gay marriage, this can obviously lead to mean that everyone who is in the coalition, or most people, I want to say, uh, don't support them either, which is something I don't obviously align with. Then there's obviously abortion. You have this concept that every single person, or not, I'm not saying this is a generalization you specifically make, but it's a generalization that's been made that people on the right tend to lean towards um, restriction of abortion. I'd say that's more of a conservative or authoritarian right. If you look at a political spectrum, I'd say that's more of that trait. But I'm, I'm speaking more towards the, the center of the column that recognizes both an authoritarian libertarian values. I personally am pro-choice. So I believe that it's not the government's right. This is a slightly more libertarian standpoint. Um, it's not the government's right to do what they want with any woman's body it's not any any of the government members or any the government as a whole it's not their right to intervene with sex practices and things like that it's not their right it's not their domain 
So I just wanted to start with that because that's obviously been a little bit of an issue is that I've seen that my side. And then also you have the left side, which is usually misrepresented. A conservative person like maybe Alex Jones will jump to call a progressive, which is definitely not a socialist or a communist, will jump to call one of those people a communist. And I think that's kind of outrageous, given that there are checks, obviously, that a progressive usually has that one doesn't have. And I think it's interesting that um, you have obviously told me that, you know, you have history. Your family line is obviously from Asia. There's obviously a history of communism in that area. So I was wondering if you could kind of lead in and say how maybe that the history of obviously the various regions that you're from or your parents are from. I don't want to nail down to China or whatever. Um how has that played an impact on your political views? Because it's definitely played an impact on mine. And it, obviously a very good example is like Cuban-Americans, for example. They came from yeah. Castro. They hate communism. You know, hand-in-hand hand, Trump, you know, or republicanism. So just kind of a, a brief overview of that. Um, yeah, so um, communism and communist governments go back to the 1940s from my family. Mm -hmm. So... My grandparents were born in the middle of World War II, and they were like six and seven when the People's Republic of China was founded. So in the beginning, it wasn't actually, they weren't really affected that much by the communist government. But later on, it got more and more um, influential in their life. Like my grandparents, they went to college, but what they could study was dictated by the government. And after college, that was the um, Cultural Revolution. So my grandfather was literally sent to a military camp and he was like um, forced to work the government and it was really harsh. And my mother distinctly recalls an incident where I think it was my great-grandmother, she was in by some of the youth communists who had the property stolen. So overall, I think on me, this has pushed me closer to the center. Like I'm very kind of nervous when it comes to leftist beliefs because I happens when we disrespect free speech and property rights and it's really not a good thing. But another thing interestingly is I've been reading stuff about demographics and um, Vietnam and China are both communist countries but Vietnam and people from there tend to be more right-leaning than people from China which I found to be really interesting. Also, I mean, it considers really the type of regime you're talking about. You talk about, obviously, my roommate, Adrian, has people that were, or his parents, or his mom specifically, was raised under Tito's Yugoslavia. And Tito's Yugoslavia can't be considered a communist regime. It was mainly a, a socialist or a kind of further down left. Obviously, he was the head of state. That's an authoritarian thing, whatever. But his policies were mainly progressive and socialist. And he actually distanced himself with the Soviet Union and established the non-alignment non block, which um, lead people to believe that he was such an influential leader and it gave kind of a good light to this devil on the left, you know what I mean? So you want to talk about China, I obviously want to lead it into a pretty important segment, something you've been very vocal about, and we've actually had a debate about this, uh, the quote-unquote China virus. And I know you obviously, you obviously know where this is going. Um, personally, I don't call it the China virus. I don't make a habit of calling it the China virus. I don't know a lot of people except for Trump and obviously people that are making a political statement about it uh, would call it that because that's not what it's called. COVID or, you know, 
the elongated medical name for it. I don't know. I took biology a while ago. Don't ask me. Um, so I want you to exactly just specifically present your stance on the people who call it the China virus, your objections, whatever. Maybe I'll try to play, I know it's going to look terrible for me, but maybe I'll try to play devil's advocate a bit because I personally agree with you. I've seen your stance, but I want to kind of give this a little bit more spice. So just give your take on that. Yeah, in my opinion, um, calling it the China virus is just generally a bad idea, and I disapprove of it. Um, I don't really think it's inherently racist anymore. I used to think it was, but I changed my mind on that. But I think it's bad because it can bring out racist tendencies and support racist individuals and movements. So I think that's the biggest issue with it. Like, yeah, it's accurate because it came from China, but that's not still, it's still really bad because that kind of an association with a people can lead to racist actions and beliefs. Totally. I think, I think an important thing that relates to what you're talking about is 9-11, how obviously after the attacks happened, various quote-unquote brown people were attacked. Obviously after the, the outbreak of COVID, various Asian people or yellow, for, permit me for using the, 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 the term, people were attacked, even though there are so many varieties of brown and yellow people, like obviously Hindu Indians, there's Pakistani people, there's people from Bangladesh, Burma, you know, and then there's obviously Asia, which is so many different territories, like, you know, you have Indochina, China, Japan, and all of that can, can be kind of generalized. And I think the issue, again, just rears its ugly head every generation, and I think it's not all, it's not the white people, I think it's the white nativist that doesn't want to change from just generalizing and, you know, homo and combining a color of people or a group of people that don't have this pigmentation into a, a lesser term or a lesser noun. So when I say that I can't fundamentally disagree with people that say all whites are racist or people who use this term are all white, whatever, I, I really point the blame at the nativist population, the people who pushed forward the Gentleman's Act and the things like that. I feel like that's the big issue in this country today, that kind of culture that eventually just needs to be progressed out. So if I were to give a kind of a, a devil's advocate argument for the China virus claim, um, I would have to go with that people are that, okay. Okay, so there's obviously been correlations between the China virus and the Spanish flu where obviously the virus didn't come from Spain, but it was most prevalent and most aware there. Is there is it possible that, and I know this is a very loose devil's argument because I freely agree with you, um, but is it possible that there could be a reasoning, a somewhat legitimate reasoning for calling it that based on the awareness it's attracted in that area specifically? Don't know. That's, that's kind of like just shatter that argument. I just kind of want to provide some kind of, you know, you killing me a little bit here. So just try to. Yeah. yeah um, a lot of people have brought up that and talking about other viruses named after places like even the Ebola virus. But the thing is that in 2015, scientists got together and they decided, yeah, we're not going to do this anymore. We aren't going to name viruses by place or person or ethnicity. And when people say, well, it's fine because we used to do this in the past, so why change? That's already using a logical fallacy, mm -hmm. the appeal to tradition fallacy. If that's the only reason you're bringing up that argument, then it's a bad argument. 
So I think it needs more substance if you're going to say something like that. We can't just say, well, we had the Spanish flu, so let's keep doing it because that's against what scientists have decided and sociologists agree on that. And it's just appeal to tradition. Very nice. Okay, that totally uh, demolished that argument. So, uh, yeah, I totally agree with that. You know, we have to progress as a culture. We have to progress as a mindset. We can't keep, you know, obviously, you know, it's this isn't the 1900s anymore. There are way more immigrants. There's this has become so much more of a melting pot. You know, we, you know, it's it's it. We need to modernize and be better. So, um, being that we're talking about COVID, being that we're talking about responses and things like that, how would you compare? Trump's response to the virus and potential further responses should he get reelected with Biden's plan to respond to the virus. And this is kind of a weird question because, you know, at the time of the, the, the swine flu, which was obviously H1N1 under the Biden administration, people are now or under the Obama administration with Biden as VP. People are saying now, obviously, now they're bringing it up. Oh, way more could have been done. Medical medical experts are saying, oh, you know, wrong steps were taken. But that's obviously now after the fact. So with that in mind, trying to kind of level the playing field here, how do you think unequivocally and just in an unbiased mindset, how do you compare those two responses? If that's an understandable question. Um, well, first off about like the swine flu response, I think when it comes to what the Obama administration did, yeah, it wasn't really a perfect response, and they obviously could have done a lot more. And um, when it comes down to it, though, one thing I find a bit strange is that the people who criticize the Obama administration's response and saying they didn't do enough often are the same people who they decry lockdowns and other responses to COVID-19, which I find to be kind of hypocritical. Like. They say, well, they should have done more in 2009. But then when governors and even sometimes the Trump administration did more now, they get angry and criticize it. So I find that interesting. And when it comes to the responses of the different candidates and their plans, my opinion is that Biden's plan is better because I feel like Biden puts more of a focus on the science and what the experts would be saying. I don't really agree with like a lot of people on the left say that Trump's response was the worst on earth and Trump takes all the responsibility because I mean, we live in a federal country. So mm -hmm. we also have to look at like a lot of governors messed it up a lot, like on both sides of the aisle. Like when it comes down to it, Cuomo delayed over a week to lock down the state after the mayor suggested it. And I have a feeling that that was just because he doesn't like the mayor. So I just think it's really a bad response. And the Trump administration um, did a few things that were okay. Like they did provide some resources to cities and towns. And when it comes to New York City, yeah, Trump did send a hospital ship down here. But Trump also downplayed the virus for months. And he like prematurely called for states and cities to reopen against the advice of experts. So when it comes down to it, I think the Biden administration would do a better job. Mm -hmm. See, I, that, I think that's one of Trump's weak points is that while I agree, and obviously I lean a, a slight bit more to Trump than I do Biden, obviously we'll get to that later, I agree with him on a lot of his economic policies. Um, well, a lot. I agree with him on a good amount of his economic policies, 
I think that he made the virus way too much of a political and an economic matter than an actual medical one. And that's the point. That's, again, if you look at the debates, me and my friends were watching the debates. As like-minded people, we were all looking at that section. We were like, uh-oh, here we go. This section's going to be a little bit bad for him because, you know, he hasn't, he hasn't had the most unbiased and professional response to the virus, which is something that Biden has more of, of, of that. So I definitely see that point there. Um, and as you said before, he downplayed it early, which I think, I think there were also clips of, obviously you said both sides of the aisle, you bring up that argument. There were clips of, um, Pelosi with the Chinese new year celebration. There were, they were doing that. So while yes, Trump is definitely one of those people, I'm not going to admit, I think it was a little bit of a more expressed attitude too early on. I think at the, as a whole, the country was at fault for a lack of, of, uh, but then again, Trump leads the country. So there you go. Um, but Okay, moving on. Um, I guess we'll just kind of move on with this topic. Uh, closing down the Chinese border. Now, uh, or we don't have a land border, but you know what I mean. Um, Biden attacked, well, did Biden attack Trump on it? Did, what, what did you, okay, generally, what do you think of that move? Was it necessary? Was it kind of like, you know, the executive order that FDR passed to, as a national security thing? Do you think, and this is kind of like a follow-up question, what do you think can constitute national security? And which can constitute, you know, um, poor decisions and things like that. So what, where do we draw the line here between what's needed and what's not needed? Because that's also ties into lockdowns. Because you know, look at nineteen, look at the nineteen thirties. You know, FDR had to institute social programs in his New Deal to reinvigorate the economy. CDC, AAA, and I'm a champion of FDR, but obviously he had his faults too. So we'll just answer that first question about. Um, national security and things like that and the Chinese border lockdown and just give your thoughts on that before we continue. Right. Um, so generally, I definitely support Trump's decision to close the Chinese border. I think he did a good job and he did it early enough so that when you look at the actual data, most of the cases in the U.S. came from Europe and not China. So I think he did an excellent job in that aspect. I don't think it's clear whether or not Biden attacked Trump yeah. on it. If you look at the text of the tweet, we can't tell if he was attacking Trump for that decision or other ones. Exactly. But, yeah, I think it was definitely a good decision. But when it comes to Europe, I think Trump could have closed the border there earlier. Like, he closed it in mid-March. But if he had closed the border to Europe, like, two weeks earlier, it might have had more effect. Mm -hmm. But... Yeah, I definitely support it. When it comes to closing borders, when it comes to a pandemic, yes, I definitely think that's something that heads of states and governments need to do. And when it comes down to it, making government decisions should come down to the greater good, in my opinion. So definitely in this case, it was for the greater good. But down a border or just based on any... Um, racist or xenophobic concerns that's a different story mm -hmm. like when it comes to trump's travel bans some of them like yeah i definitely think he did a good job like banning travel to and from north korea of course because you know your citizens have been killed there but i think trump needed to have more of a justification when it comes to shutting down travel from Nigeria and other similar countries. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the the Muslim travel ban was, or so it's been called, 
uh, by obviously depending on who you talk to, um, has definitely been was something I actually wanted to lead into right after. So you kind of sniped that out of the air. Um, from what I saw, again, it's not. I, I I don't like it. I don't particularly like it when people call it the Muslim travel ban because even though it is targeting Muslim countries. It's not all of them. It's not a Muslim ban. For example, you have countries like Algeria, Tunisia, Morocco, Libya that were not banned from entering the country. It was, I believe, the justification for Trump, and this is obviously something you talked about, the level of justification here is also another question, but the justification was governments that seemed to pose a threat to ours and that proposed a national security threat. You have, like, Yemen, think Oman was maybe one of them. Iran was one of them. There were very, it was various countries in the Middle Eastern area, not necessarily like North Africa and other, obviously other parts too, um, that were mainly based on government power. It was like kind of an, uh, uh, an example of real politic a little bit, slightly, even though that's something I don't entirely fundamentally agree with. Um, so yeah, I definitely see your point there leading in with that, um, with regards to the Muslim trait and how like it could be a, a national security issue, etc. Um, but I don't know. So if you have more thoughts on that, I kind of want to talk more about that because that's been like an issue. That was an issue of controversy a lot, like, you know, when he started, when he was, you know, in his, his opening years. So um, I don't know if we, I don't know, if, I don't know the full list, but the question I'm basically asking you is how do we justify a government threatening our nation? Because then theoretically, wouldn't we also want to ban travel from or communication from Russia as well, as Russia and Iran have now clearly evidenced that they are interfering in our elections? So, you know, what are your thoughts on what are the justifications? Uh, what could the justifications be for establishing a government as hostile in these times? Well, I think a hostile government is, like you said, like Russia and other countries interfering in the election. I think that's definitely something that would constitute hostile actions. I think it goes beyond just physical violence. Like that would that would be the obvious one, but if other countries are messing with our personal and national sovereignty, that's another thing. Like the United States should do what it needs to do to um, exert its influence in the ways that a nation can. And Another issue is like all the way out in Japan, the question is what constitutes self-defense and does defending your allies count as self-defense? And I think the answer is yes. If another country is threatening our allies, that also threatens us. Like I remember Russia literally tried to hack the lower house of the German legislature and they invaded Ukraine and did other really crazy things. So I think that definitely constitutes a hostile government. But also when it comes to travel bans in these situations, I feel like we need to separate the citizen from their government, especially like a lot of these countries aren't democracies. So I don't really think it's fair to punish the citizens of that country and say, well, you can't come here because your government's bad because they don't really elect their government and the government often oppresses them too. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I don't feel like, it's enough to warrant a travel ban until it gets to like the point where the government threatens our own citizens. Like if Russia starts signing up spies to come to the U.S. and institute terrorist actions, yes, that's kind of where we go towards a travel ban. But I think in other situations, maybe it would be better just to apply 
more scrutiny to people who want to come here from those countries to weed out any potential problems. So more scrutiny. Now, that's actually the question I was going to ask. How do we define more scrutiny? Because it, it, what you're describing is a little bit of a, a philosophical or philosophical, fuck me, a philosophical dilemma um, in that can we be too naive or too hard, you know? Like, how do we sort these quote-unquote bad M&Ms from, a, you know, a pack of candy? So what is, okay, so obviously, okay, to address your earlier points, I think what we're kind of experiencing here with China and Russia and things like that is kind of like a Sudeten crisis a little bit. You think about World War II and defending allies. Czechoslovakia was an ally of, of the French Republic at the time. They formed a system of protection in the Balkan area to prevent the rise of Austria-Hungary and Italy again. So when you think of that, I think it's interesting the kind of parallels we're seeing here. Is this, you know, a, a form of neo-appeasement, you know? Could we see that? So I think those are excellent points that you brought up that I totally agree with. So my question is, if you were to pick a an ideological extreme, which is a very tough question for like-minded centrists who look at all of the possible virtues and faults of every single ideology, this is kind of a, a little bit of a curveball here. If you were to pick one side of it, recognizing that there are virtues and failures of each, what would you would you preserve national security or liberty? I think that's a very interesting question. So, the floor is yours. Yeah, that's really a kind of a hard question. Yep. Um, I think it comes down to what benefits the most people. Mm -hmm. If um, favoring national security means less people die or injured by dangerous actions, then that's what we need to do. But if we err too strongly towards national security and that harms the civil liberties and it can even cause like real like physical harm to citizens if we do that. So if we trend towards authoritarianism, that also can lead to severe harm to the people. Mm -hmm. So I think it comes down to what causes more harm. So I, th I think you, you, exp you express a kind of utilitarianism kind of mindset that it's like if you, you know you have the trolley situation it's you know all about what results in the most good happening so it's likely that you philosophically speaking would direct the trolley to the one person as opposed to the group of five people to save the most and to ensure the most pleasure as mill put it um so i think that's interesting to point out so i guess to play devil's advocate here now, I know this is going to make me look terrible, but I can't keep agreeing with you. It's not going to look good for the episode. So, um, I guess to play devil's advocate, um, you have things like the Supreme Court case that resulted from the FDR um, in Japanese internment. I, I forget the name of the case. I'm sure you know it. I just You're taking U.S. history now, I'm pretty sure. So, you should definitely have, or maybe soon you'll, you'll know about the Supreme Court cases. Um, but there was an, a, a landmark Supreme Court case in which the uh, U.S. ruled against the right of a Japanese immigrant to come to the country freely without being interned in these camps in California. Obviously, that's the Western theater, so that's towards Japan. Um, so I think... Hmm. How am I going to pose this? Um, I think that in specific times... I guess to play devil's advocate here, in specific times, is it definitely... Is it... It's... Is it not necessary to trample a little bit on civil liberties to ensure overall security? Because you said that when we start trampling on civil liberties, it starts becoming an issue. But to play devil's advocate, I guess, 
Um, what do you think about the notion that sometimes there must be strong government control? Is that what the founding fathers would have desired, or so, just your general thoughts on that? I don't know. It's a tough yeah. Question. Um. Yeah. <laughs> um. One thing is like the founding fathers are often portrayed as like one collective block of people. But what I think is interesting is that they're really not one collective block. Like we had so many different ideas from that time. Just the best ones won out, of course.、Mm -hmm. So it's kind of hard to think what the founding fathers would have thought when they were somewhat divided in their ideologies. Good point. But yeah, the it depends. Like the Federalists, I know, would probably have been okay with it. Like they actually passed bans on、um, certain. No, it wasn't a ban. It was like they changed the citizenship requirements, and they also banned false speech that criticized the government. So I think that's、Sedition、something the Federalists、yeah. would definitely be、yeah. very comfortable with. Yeah, but the Democratic Republicans would not have had that. That would have been like out the window. But when it comes down to it,、um, yeah, I think. Civil liberties—the definition of it—is to be subject to laws that are created for the greater good.、Mm -hmm. And I remember seeing earlier today, New York passed a law requiring everyone to wear seatbelts, no matter where they are in the car or how old they are.、Mm -hmm. And I saw in the comments a lot of people were saying, "Well, I'm not going to wear my seatbelt anyway," which I think is kind of silly because,、mm -hmm. like, you're going to die in an accident. But The question is, does the government have the authority? And when it comes down to it, if it saves more people, maybe. But the government also needs to be limited. Like we don't want a situation where Thanos, like we have a situation where the government can wipe out three and a half billion people to save four billion.、Mm -hmm. That's not something we want.、Mm -hmm. So, civil liberties are important, and. They're not really something the government should be able to take away freely.、Mm -hmm. Like the Enlightenment speakers, they often spoke of liberty as granted by God, and no man can take away another person's liberty. So I think certain liberties the government cannot, under any circumstance, take away,、mm -hmm. like the liberty to say what you believe, the First Amendment, and the liberty to de defend yourself, which. Partially stems from the Second Amendment, and the liberty not to be searched unreasonably and to have a fair trial. Like、mm -hmm. even in the Civil War, Lincoln was not able to suspend the writ of habeas corpus, and I believe it's actually in the Constitution itself and not the Bill of Rights, which just goes to show how important it is. Wait, didn't so, he, did he so not? Didn't, wait, did he not suspend the writ of habeas corpus temporarily though? I'm pretty sure. Um, I. I think he tried, but I think the court said he couldn't do it. Either that, or maybe the court just backed out and actually let him do it. I think、but、it was I yeah. I think he was stopped. I think I'm pretty sure that from what I remember, and、uh, I I don't remember this. This was a while ago. I'm pretty sure it was one of the only times that the writ of habeas corpus was suspended. Obviously, we can look that up later. That's not really important. But I think that's interesting. The an interesting argument you provide now. To kind of continue on a little bit of a stronger devil's advocate pace, there was this、um, Supreme Court case in which a、um, socialist journalist and his fiance、uh, Charles something—you've probably heard of this case—during World War One, during the draft,、um, posted pamphlets everywhere 
to uh, discourage joining the draft. And when you have a national security issue like war, you talk about these civil liberties. Is it, and he was obviously, Charles, uh, uh, was it Mills? Maybe Mills. I don't know. Don't quote me. Um, the Supreme Court ruled against him and said that he violated the, um, what was it? The, uh, one of the acts that says you can't go against the, the, the U.S. during military time or something. It was, a. Uh, Ah, oh, jeez, I forget. Wow, I can't believe it. it's been so long since I took U.S. history. Okay, ignore me. Um, so it was ruled against him, and this is kind of seen as like a breach of civil liberties, even though it would have directly impacted the effort. Now, let's say hypothetically, this is kind of a follow-up question. This, these draft pamphlets led to a wide, were actually really successful. They weren't really that successful at the time, but say that they were. And this resulted in a huge loss of manpower for the United States. And this isn't election year, so it's not like people can just vote out the president and, and the war, and that's not how treaties work, things like that. Um, say now that this had way more of an impact. Do you think that this allowing of a civil liberty, say the Supreme Court ruled in favor of him, uh, this allowing of a, of a civil liberty was for the greater good? Because, you know, on the war effort side, from a logistical standpoint you lose millions of men from it who are deserting so just your thoughts on that supreme course i'm gonna actually look it up on my phone and uh tell you the exact name of it if you want some uh exact details but that's just kind of the question i'm posing to you all right um it's kind of hard to say I mean, I I know what like my personal opinions are. Like, I don't think World War One was really a justifiable war, and I think it was just a ton of nationalism. And I don't really know if like, getting more people to kill more people is like actually for the greater good. But setting that aside, like assuming we're talking about a war in which the U.S. is defending itself, like if we're talking about the Revolution or maybe the War of eighteen twelve, then it's kind of harder to say, but if we're talking about a situation where it leaked some classified information and that got a ton of soldiers killed, yeah, I think that would be a situation where we would have to curb that civil liberty because we don't want people dying. But when it comes to a wartime thing, I mean, I think he should have been entitled to express his views in my opinion mm -hmm. because it didn't directly lead to anyone dying but or being injured but if it had led to that or if it had led to someone else being infringed of their rights then that might have been a different case so i feel like with you it's kind of like more of a moral and ethical standpoint obviously if this was a home front based war this was actually a need for excess manpower and things like that. But since it was an overseas war and the real justifications were unrestricted submarine warfare and obviously the Zimmerman telegram, it's not really warranting to suppress that freedom of speech. And I think you see that with the Vietnam protests, too. Like, if, say, hypothetically, yeah. you know, the Vietnam protests were completely censored, you know? which they were to an extent, and obviously you had kids ripping up their draft cards too, so I think a similar situation is provided. I've actually changed my stance, and by the way, the case is called Charles Schenck versus the United States, and the act that he was violating uh -huh. is the Espionage Act. So it's kind of like a gray area which says you can't, you know, mess with U.S. operations during wartime. Something you'll definitely get to if you haven't already in uh, U.S. history, which should definitely be right up your alley. You're going to learn a lot of things there. I've actually fluctuated a lot in my stance on this case. I used to think... 
that simply because it was a wartime and we needed all the resources we could possibly get, that this was unwarranted, that this form of free speech was... But then you talk about Vietnam, a conflict thousands of miles away that had no real purpose in us being involved in there for a simple political domino effect, like Eisenhower warned, you know. So there's obviously debates to that. So right now, obviously, I would side with Schenck, even though obviously I'm not a socialist. I agree that his freedom of speech trumps the right of national security in that case. So it's a very interesting philosophical dilemma. Okay, uh, we're at like 36 minutes in, so I want to move into the next segment. This is something you're really going to shine on. LGBTQ rights. As someone who is religious, obviously, you've uh, seen a lot of uh, people say, uh, oh, typically concert, uh, Catholic and you know Christian people and people who read the Bible say that homosexuality is a sin and gay marriage should never happen. It should only be unions and things like that so clearly use this as a platform to establish your stance on this uh obviously discredit people who don't agree with your position obviously take this time to establish your stance on this position who i just said all right um i find myself in a weird situation as a person who's christian mm -hmm. but i also am a member of the lgbtq community mm -hmm. and I'm not the only one when it comes to this. Actually, a lot of religious people, I, I looked at the poll from 2020, most religious people support LGBT rights, and most LGBT people are religious, so it's kind of interesting, I thought. But yeah, in this situation, for me, religion has always been more of an individual thing, like the one person and the relationship mm -hmm. with God. And I know I've made my peace with my creator when it comes to this, and everyone has their own beliefs and their own way of practicing their religion. So I don't really think it's fair to force someone to change their religious beliefs, but I also don't think it's fair to shove your religious beliefs on someone else. Mm -hmm. And when it comes to the idea that homosexuality is a sin, I've been reading the Bible and I've been reading some of the deeper um, analysis of it and the actual original text and when it comes to the passages in the New Testament, I don't think any of them really can apply to a loving, stable, same-sex relationship. Like, first off, every if you take everything at face value, it always talks about sex. It only talks about sexual intercourse. So applying textualism here, we can throw out any condemnation of romantic relationships and civil unions and even civil marriage, those can all be thrown out. And if you actually look at the text in the New Testament, it would seem that it's actually condemning idolatry that involves sexual relationships, as that's something they actually did in certain areas in Europe at the time. And it also condemns pederasty and pedophilia. But if you actually look at it, I don't think it actually applies to a blanket ban on homosexuality. And a lot of new Bible translations are reflecting this in Germany and France, which I think is cool. And if we go back to the Old Testament, this is kind of controversial because people apply the Old Testament as Christians differently. And I know the Jewish community tends to use only the Old Testament, I believe. Mm -hmm. So in my belief, only like... Only laws that are repeated in the New Testament apply. 
So right off the bat, any civil and ceremonial laws in the Old Testament don't apply. Mm -hmm. And moral laws, they have to be repeated in the New Testament to apply, or it's something that's pretty obvious. Mm -hmm. So when it comes down to it, I've already thrown out all of the New Testament verses against homosexuality. There's a few verses in Leviticus, and this one, it's harder to look at in a textualist perspective because the translations and the actual grammatical structures are harder to pick apart. I mean, we're talking about older languages, so it becomes a bit unclear. But one possible interpretation is that it's actually talking about the relationship of the respective sexes in society and the relationships they would hold in a sexual relationship. So if we're talking about man not lying as a woman, the Bible was more egalitarian, but was still kind of um, putting in a situation where women were considered property of men. I mean, the Old Testament, we saw that if a woman gets raped, she has to marry her rapist, mm -hmm. which is definitely not something we would do. So I think one possible thing that is wrong. So I don't know. I don't really think the Bible condemns homosexuality in any form. And notwithstanding this, I don't think any interpretation of the Bible or any religious belief should really be influencing the law. And we have the 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, which guarantees equal protection of the laws. And we have, we have to regardless of who they are in the same way and marriage is an institution of society that provides certain privileges and protections like being able to open a joint bank account being listed on your partner's death certificate being able to manage your finances and taxes jointly and just a lot of other things so it's definitely institution of protection and it's not fair to or it's not constitutional even to deny this protection to someone based on their identity. That was a lot, and I totally agree with a lot of the major points you made. You contrast the Old Testament and the New Testament, and in contrasting this, you see, and this is a story post that you posted that, I, that kind of really caught my eye, is the difference in social norms. You think about the concept that homosexuality is a sin was really more of a social norm at the time of, you know, obviously yeah. LGBTQ plus per, uh, persecution. So I think obviously raises a lot of fair points though. Personally, obviously I'm not gonna play devil's advocate here because don't want that on tape. But um, uh, but I definitely agree obviously with rights uh, for obviously gay, lesbian, etc. Couples. Um, I don't think religion and the separation of the church and the state. Um, I don't think either entity has the right. Like I said earlier, with abortion, has the right to infringe upon the love between two people. So that's uh, a liberty kind of standpoint I have. So I totally agree with that. And I, I really, uh, I like how you were quoting certain areas of the Bible. I'm personally not well versed in the Bible, but I'm sure certain viewers are. Um, and they'll kind of understand that in a more textually sound way. So uh, we're at, I think, 43 minutes. So I wanted to move on to a different segment. Obviously, you gave an excellent piece for that. I'm sure you'll give continue to. 
Um, so Black Injustice, you've posted a lot about. You have a social, uh, you have a, uh, an Instagram story like category. You know they have those like categorical posts um, yeah. about that. Uh, so my question to you is, uh, given the conflicting or apparently conflicting um, parties' viewpoints on the social stance of the black person in today's America, and given that it's entirely possible that, and it's my opinion that both are playing a vote, you know, obviously, trying to appeal to a specific amount of people for votes in certain African-American-dominated states. Who, Which administration do you think will have, if you were to choose one, which administration do you think would do the better justice for black Americans in our country? Um, I think, again, I would probably pick the Biden administration but my concern with the Biden administration would be if they take things too far and get too radical when it comes to this, or if the Biden administration has been just like value signaling and pandering and doesn't actually enact the important um, legislation and changes needed. But I think the Biden administration has been more open to reforming our systems to help black and other um, minority Americans. So I think that would be a thing. But I also don't want to discredit the Trump administration completely. I mean, I've heard people say he's a racist, but when it comes to relationships with black people, I think Trump has a mixed record when it comes to this. I wouldn't blatantly say he's racist. And he's also done a few good things. Like I've heard that he's been sending funds to historically black colleges. And a major thing is the bipartisan criminal justice reform earlier on in the administration, and that's a major achievement. So I don't think the Trump administration is really like evil, hates black people or anything, but I think the Biden administration would probably do a better job. Here's my issue, uh, and I totally agree with that, but I'm obviously going to bring up the platinum plan here, and obviously you've heard about Ice Cube's involvement in that, but that's not what I'm not going to say. Oh, platinum plan, he's not racist. Um, I think Trump's goal is to focus again he's a very economically minded person i think his goal is to focus on economics here and i think while the biden administration does a better job of directly citing the issues we have with our justice system and our law enforcement system i'm a little bit a little bit skeptical of the pandering because um in my opinion i think when you massively pander to a group of people and uh essentially which, which I think the Biden administration has done more than the Trump administration. I'm pretty sure that's a solid claim to make. Um, I think it can result in a mindset where, okay, listen, we're going to give you all these protections. Just surrender your vote to us. And I don't entirely think that under a Trump administration, I think the maybe the mindset of the Trump supporters, I think, is to blame for the status of law enforcement in the country. I read, and this is an excellent book that you should read, and I've told you about it. You've probably read it. Uh, Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson, which talks about the death penalty and how it disproportionately affects people of color. In southern states, uh, I, they have, uh, and obviously states have their own policy. There's that, you know, enshrinement of state right here. Uh, they have very skewed justice systems, and they still do, and they still definitely need reform. I'm just a little skeptical that Biden is really going to upend some of his supporters, which could very well be white. Um to make quote-unquote well to make incredibly needed reform because he's appealing already to so many people 
I don't want to. I don't want to make it sound like I think Biden's not going to do anything. I think he's, again, like I said, I think he's publicly cited the issue more than Trump has. But I'm a little skeptical. I'm a little too skeptical of his ability to um, truly focus on that issue. And what I'm going to look at here is things that he said. Obviously, he has a stutter. I'm not going to make fun of his stutter. But a stutter is one thing, and misconstruing things is totally another thing. You have poor children are just as qualified as white children, which is something you don't say. You have him, obviously in the past, obviously, I'm not going to use this as a main argument, but it's a little supplement, um, that he did vote in favor of segregation in the past. Um, and overall, I just think that Trump has a very economic mindset, and I personally like the idea, as much as we definitely need, I've admitted this in the past, as much as we definitely need law enforcement reform and justice reform so that the communities are more tightly intertwined with the respective administrations, I'm kind of, I'm really liking Trump's, because he, in his platinum plan, he's really focusing on creating jobs and creating economic opportunity. That's his focus. And I'm kind of cool with that. And you think of like people like 50 Cent, who are all about the money, and obviously they posted the thing about the taxes. So I think Trump is appealing to a very economic base when it comes to black people. And I think that is a a very respectful, I think it, it could be a, a stronger, even a little bit more, in my opinion, a little bit more solidified position on black America than the Biden administration. I know obviously you're going to say, obviously you have things to say about that. So go ahead, correct me if I'm wrong, give a counter argument, your, your response to that. Yeah, I think Biden definitely has that problem of appealing to a lot of people. The Democratic Party's base is pretty wide nowadays. They yep. kept... Yeah, they kept a lot of the vestiges of the fourth and fifth party systems. Like we have the same senators of the same party of Joe Manchin, who's like always crossing the party lines. And we also have like Kamala Harris and Bernie Sanders. And I think that's definitely a problem the Democrats have more than the Republicans. I mean, the Republicans do have like Hogan and Baker and Scott and Sununu but they have less of that than the Dems in my exactly. opinion. So, yeah. That's, so yeah. I think- Go on, go on, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, it's okay, yeah. Um, yeah, I think that would be a, an issue, like trying to get all of the Democrats on board on the same policies. In New York, they tried to legalize marijuana, but there was so much conflict between liberal and leftist senators and uh, and in Jersey, that happened again, where they weren't able to pass it by legislature. So they had to get the people of the state to do it for them. And that's the referendum we're having in New Jersey on the ballot this year. So I think that's another related issue. I mean, I, I um, that's something else that people have brought up about criminal justice. I'm kind of um, ambivalent on it. Like, I don't really like the idea of legalizing marijuana. But I also don't like the idea of throwing people in jail for marijuana. That's a very good point. And yeah, um, yeah, that's definitely an issue with Biden. And some of his past policies when it comes to racial justice have been pretty bad. Like in the 70s and 80s, opposing the integration of busing is definitely something that's a red flag. Like, why would you do that? Mm -hmm. And the 90s, the crime bill. I know, I think he did say that it was wrong, and I think he admitted it was a mistake, but he also did try to justify it by saying we had a lot of crime. But 
I think the most important thing for him to say is how he's going to make amends for that. And his plan has been, uh, I don't really know that much about it, to be honest, but I think he has to have more of a solid plan when it comes to reversing these things. Mm -hmm. And when it comes to Trump, I think that's also something Trump could do too, which is to have more of a plan of how to fix these problems from past legislation gone wrong. And I agree that um, Trump's plans to help black people and minority people uh, with economic issues, I think that's another focus that Biden needs to have more of. And I think that's a big issue. And I remember earlier in like June, I saw a lot of people to the left of me saying we need more welfare and welfare helps black people and welfare, welfare, welfare. But I don't really like that. Mm. First off, like we already waste so much money on welfare on people who don't deserve it. We waste $65 billion on welfare every single year. That's more like, that's more than the entire country's police budget, if I remember correctly. So that's like not the solution. We don't like help people achieve their full goals and full potential by giving them handouts and letting them stay in poverty and comfort. And we have to help people get more opportunities so they can advance in society. So that's definitely not something that I want to see. I don't want to see a lot of welfare and pandering and saying, if you vote for me, you'll get more welfare. Well, I don't think that's really helpful to people. So that's like one of the biggest problems with Biden's plan is that I don't see him talking about economic opportunity, especially for minority people. And also, yeah, like you mentioned, he has a history of certain racist legislation and even really bad comments. And, you know, and it's the same thing on the Trump administration, too. Trump has had that claim of housing, which obviously was up in the air, whether it was racially motivated or yeah. not. So I'm not going to say it's only one side, that both have made their mistakes, obviously, in the 70s, 80s, 90s, when that wasn't a concern. But I think... Like, you mentioned welfare. I think you're totally right when it comes to that. I personally, obviously, the need for a welfare state is totally necessary, but I feel like the focus of welfare fundamentally should be experience and the ability to grow in the American economy. It should not be something really that you survive off of, you know? The whole point is that you use that money to invest back in the economy. You know, try to work for a bigger company or try to make an, your own product or some, 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 something like that where you're expanding your influence off of that safety net that we have. So I really like that you're mentioning economic in, uh, opportunity as a means of, of growth. And I think, you know something, the, the responses that you've given me, the answers you give me, the energy that I'm feeling is, is very Bill Clinton-esque. And I don't want to say that with a negative connotation like there obviously is. I want to totally ignore the Monica Lewinsky thing, but he actually presided over the largest span of economic history in the country's history. Um, so, and I think Democrats take a little bit too much credit for that because he was, he had the same mindset as you, which is economic opportunity, taxing in a three, I believe it was a 3% increase on income tax for the top 1.3%. And that paid for a lot of social programs they paid for, but he invested heavily in the private sector and allowed for a lot of economic uh, investment. So I think you do an excellent job of proposing that point, and I have seen no need to present the devil's argument to that because I totally agree with you there. And I think, honestly speaking, I think if you were to run for a con congressional position, I think you would have my vote, if I'm being completely honest, because I totally agree with the way you're 
producing these points. So the last question I'm going to ask you, because we're approaching the hour mark, is um, do you think with the two-party system, and I hate the two-party system, make it totally clear, um, and I'm always going to throw in a two-party system in all of my episodes, do you think with the two-party system, the goals that need to be accomplished in this country right now, social reform, economic reform, law enforcement reform, do you think that they can truly be accomplished as long as there is a party grab or a power grab issue in place in the, in the floor, on the floors of Congress? Your thoughts on that? Yeah, I really don't think so. I think, well, I wouldn't actually rule it out completely. I think there is some room for compromise, but it's not very likely. And the two-party system is one of the worst issues we have in modern American politics. And that's what the founders feared. Throughout history, we had a two-party system, but it was somewhat okay because it was more of a regional thing where we had people who had, we had conservative Democrats and liberal Republicans. And I feel like that kind of balanced things out. But going towards the 70s, 80s, 90s, it just got worse and worse. And that's a big problem because it encourages people to take their party side and just grab power like we saw in Maryland, Wisconsin, North Carolina, Ohio. These are just really places where people care, the politicians care more about their own power than the will of the people. So I think when it comes down to it, we have to focus on making reforms to allow other voices to be heard. So in my opinion, what we need is um, mixed member proportional representation, exactly. and that's what they do in New Zealand. And that would definitely let more voices be heard from the Green Party, the Libertarian Party. And if we can split up the Democrat and Republican parties, it's even better. So I think that's one thing. And when it comes to choosing the president, ranked choice voting would also be another reform that I'd advocate. You're hitting all the notes. I honestly, I, a senator actually came in last year or two years ago. Um, that was actually related to one of the students who went to Staten Island Tech. Um, and she explained, she's a proponent, she was, a, I think, a senator, or maybe working for a senator, uh, or an assemblyman, maybe, something like that. Um, she was a proponent for ranked choice voting, and I'm a total proponent for ranked choice voting because it's clear we have a representation issue in the country when it comes to just choosing A or B. Listen, I wanted to conclude this episode by by saying that I think you're an incredibly politically gifted and a very smart individual, and I'm really pushing for you to change your intended major because I think people with your mindset who want to see generally what's good for the masses, good for most people, most effective, I think is what's really needed in the, in the political situation today. So I really wanted to thank you for coming on. It's obviously... A little difficult coming on this show and kind of giving out your political viewpoints because, as we can see, that can apparently play a role in if you get picked for a job or not. But I think the things that you've said are not out of reason at all, so I don't think that should be an issue. So thank you so much for coming on. I'm definitely going to have you on for future episodes as our social stories con continue to untangle. And kind of like a lasting message, I'd say, for the people who view your stories and simply scroll past them, I think you have a lot of interesting thoughts. And I think to the people that do just kind of tap by them, I think you should stop. I think you should take the time to read what he puts on his story because he's truly a champion for, I think you are a champion for all of the right things that the country needs in terms of progressive reform, social reform, things like that, while not being, not leaning too much to one side. I think you have a perfect understanding of moderation, things like that. So again, 
thank you for coming on. And uh, that's it for episode four. Tune in next time on the channel, Spotify, iTunes, etc. Thank you so much, Eric. It was a pleasure having you on. Thanks a lot.